Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. And as you are probably well aware, we are in a series on the parables of Jesus. Coming from the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we've touched on some fun ones, the two sons, the Good Samaritan, and today's parable is about the laborers in the field, or the workers in the field, and it comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. So this is how Matthew puts it. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some other people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. Landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner, Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. This is again, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. So now, this parable falls amongst a litany of teachings by Jesus about the last and the first and serving others and who will be first in the kingdom of heaven and who will be last, and it fits in with the paradigm that Jesus is trying to show, which is that the kingdom of heaven has an order that is unlike the kingdoms or the expectations of the world or the kingdoms of the world, which is what we would assume from Jesus, right? With these parables that we've been uh, deconstructing and reconstructing and looking at, Jesus has been teaching us and we've been looking at them as sort of upside down. Jesus is going against the status quo. There's something happening within these parables that goes against the cultural expectation, and Jesus is doing something altogether different. So what does this parable mean? What is this parable getting at? I honestly think there's three ways we can approach this, and each of these three ways, I think, carry some weight. I think each of these three ways has a good measure of substance to it. And so instead of telling you which one I think is the best, like Jesus said in an earlier story, how do you read it, 
right? I want to know how do you read it. And with that in mind, if you want to join us at one o'clock on Thursday to discuss this further, you're welcome to go to the show notes, click on the Zoom link, and at one o'clock on Thursday, you can join us and we will discuss this further because I want to know how do you read it. So here are the three different ways that I think you could engage us. And there may be more because in good uh, midrash fashion, there is not one way, but there are multiple ways into a story. And so how do you read it? Here are three ways that I am offering at the outset. Number one, this is a parable about God's grace. It's a parable about God's grace. And here's the thing about God's grace. It's available to all. No matter when they turn to it, no matter when they look for it, no matter when there's a moment of repentance and returning to the good, God's grace is there for people to receive. God's grace is available, and it's available to all. Similar to the the story of the thief on the cross, that on the cross after whatever had caused this person to be on the cross, a life of sin, thievery, um, you know, going against the empire, whatever it was that found this person on the cross, instead of mocking Jesus like the other people and like the other person on the cross, this one said, today may you receive me in paradise, right? I want to be with you in paradise. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so at the last possible moment, God's grace is sufficient for this person. And so maybe this parable about the workers in the field, that no matter when they are hired, no matter when they are a part of the economic system of the day, working in the field, no matter when they join in the work, they are offered the same wage as the rest. And so uh, like the wage of the person in charge of the field, so God's grace is the same no matter when you turn for it, no matter when you get it. There isn't more grace because you've been a part of the cool Christian club for longer. It's the same grace yesterday, today, and it will be the same grace tomorrow. And so the question then becomes, well, why why not wait for it? Well, because we obviously at some level don't know when our last day is, and so it's probably good to turn for it now. Or the participation in God's grace is part of the gift. Participating in God's grace is part of the gift of what God has for us, what Jesus offers us. Life with the Spirit is a more dynamic, full, holistic life than life without the Spirit or without being in touch with what God is up to in this world. A life of helping others, a life of service, a life of helping to see purpose in the world, a life of righting the wrongs and being part of God's reconciliation, of restoring hope in the world. That's a life of grace, and it's better than any life of selfish greed or um, individualism or anything else. It's to be a part of the community of God's saints. And so, yes, we turn to God's grace early, as early as possible. We invite people to return to the good. Why? Because living in God's grace is the best way to live. It's the most generous, kind, hospitable, uh, self-control, patient, loving, joyful way to live. So be a part of it. Be a part of God's grace. But don't think that just because you've been a part of it for a long time means that the person turning to it now isn't just as much worthy as you are. God's grace is available to all and is the same for all no matter when you return to the good. Here's idea number two. Maybe this is a parable about scarcity 
and abundance. Scarcity and abundance. How many of us look at the world like it's a slice of pie, right? We look at the world and we look at resources, we look at opportunities, we look at privilege and we say the world is like a slice of pie and if I don't get my slice of pie, then it may be gone, right? We've been a part of a big family where there's been lots of cousins running around, lots of siblings. And so at Christmas time, all the desserts go out on the table, all the desserts are on the counter. And you know that as much as there is a ton of desserts on the Christmas countertop, there's actually only so many available. And there are special brownies with mint frosting at Christmas time. And there's only so many of them. And you know exactly how many cousins there are. You know exactly how many aunts and uncles there are. And you know exactly how much most of them like to eat and which dessert they like to eat. And so although it looks like an abundant pile of desserts at Christmas time, you know there's actually a limit. You know there's a limit. And so you are going to make sure that even if it is before you've had dinner, even if you know that the cover is still on the tin, you are going to sneak a brownie with mint frosting because you don't want to be left out in the cold in that endeavor. You don't want to be the one not getting the slice of pie. You don't want to be the one empty handed at the end of the night because some cousin happened to grab a plate full of brownies instead of just one, even though they were first in line. The earlier workers were promised something. But because they didn't get their pay right away, they were concerned that they might not get their fair share. And not only did they not think they were going to get their fair share, maybe they deserved more because they put in more work. They acted as if there was only so much to go around. And maybe they weren't going to get what they were owed. And so they had expectations. They assumed that the pay was limited as opposed to abundant. It's kind of reminiscent of the parable of the prodigal son that this younger son goes off and spoils half of the inheritance, throws it all away, and then comes crawling back to dad. And instead of getting punished for what he had done, instead the dad kills the fatted calf, puts a robe back on his shoulders, puts sandals on his feet, gets a ring for his finger, initiating him back into the family as a full member of the family, and they have a party. And remember, if the son had already burned through his half of the inheritance, then the party that they are throwing is using up the resources of which son? Not the younger one. That one already ruined all of his. The party is being thrown with the resources of the older brother's inheritance. It's being thrown with what will be given to the older brother as his inheritance. And so when this younger son comes back and there's a party going on, the older brother is out in the field working and he's wondering what is going on up at the house. And he's told, your younger brother is home. It's a miracle. It's amazing. He's back and they're throwing a party for him. They even killed the fatted calf that we've been waiting to eat. And so the older brother is angry and won't go in the house. And the father comes out to the older son and is like, why won't you go into the house? And he's like, what have you ever done for me? I've slaved for you all my life. I've done all the right things. And now you are throwing a party for this son of yours who has thrown away all of your money on lavish, you know, disrespectful living. And what does the father say to the older brother in that moment? He doesn't say, oh, you're right. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have welcomed him back. 
He said, your brother, not just my son, your brother, you're connected to him. Your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. And son, everything I have has always been yours. You've been at the party the whole time. So why are you complaining about it now? You've been a part of the kingdom. You've been a part of the party. You've had everything and it's always been yours. You need to open your eyes to what's around you. I wonder if that's what those early workers felt like is we've done all the hard work. Why are we just getting a minimal amount of pay? And the answer of this landowner is you're getting exactly what I promised you. You're getting exactly what you wanted. It's always been yours. Who cares what I'm giving someone else? It's also a little bit reminiscent of the Lord's Prayer, the very end of it where it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I've always wondered, what's the temptation about? I listened to a podcast and Rob Bell explains it this way, that the temptation, the temptation is to think that the blessings we receive, that what we have in life is our responsibility, that somehow we've earned the blessing that we're getting as opposed to the generosity of God, that God has been generous. And so everything we have is a blessing from God. It's not something we earn. And when we think it's something that we've earned, when we think that it is something that we have uh, worked hard for, and sometimes we do work hard for the things in life, but when we think that we are solely responsible for the blessings that we have, we tend to want to defend those things. We tend to want to make sure that we hold on to those things. And so the evil that we are needing to be delivered from is subjugating, minimizing, oppressing others in order to keep our place, in order to keep our position, our privilege, in order to keep ourselves at the status that we've arrived at. So the temptation is to think that somehow we're responsible for the status we've arrived at. And the evil is to is to mitigate others and to subjugate others to keep that place. And so here we have these workers in the field who feel like they've earned something, like it's theirs, as opposed to a gift that's being given to them as opposed to something that is being given away. This is a parable about scarcity and abundance because we live in a world that likes to tell us that there's only so much. But the message of scripture and the message of God is that there's always enough. There's always enough grace. There's always enough forgiveness. There's always love, love, love. There's no shortage of love in the Trinity. There's no shortage of love to be showered upon God's people. Now, it doesn't mean that life always works out perfectly or that it always looks great, but there is always love and belonging and wholeness available to us, that that is the message of this parable. It's not about scarcity. It's about abundance, that there's always enough. No matter when you turn for it, it's present. And so when we think we've earned this, it's not about what you earn. It's about what you recognize as being given to you, the generosity that is offered. The third idea is that this parable, and this is a very different reading of this parable. The third idea is that this parable is about economic inequality and the way the poor are treated. 
Now, one scholar that I read, Herzog, who we've referenced a few times, he takes a completely different approach to this parable, even questioning the way Matthew has utilized it. He thinks that Matthew may have inserted this story, which would have been a common Jesus story to be shared, and he is using it for his purposes in the midst of chapter 20. And so the idea about God's grace and the idea about scarcity and abundance and the first being last and the last being first fits very nicely into the entire narrative of what Matthew is up to. And so if we look at this parable and we say, what's really going on here? Because what we know from the culture is that someone became an elite landowner, a wealthy landowner, by acquiring farms that had impoverished people owning them. So your land would end up becoming impoverished. The crop wouldn't quite yield what you needed it to. And so in order to make ends meet, you would sell your land and you would sell it to a rich landowner who wasn't worried about a famine, wasn't worried about a shortage of the food supply. And so these rich landowners would just acquire more and more land, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they had to hire people to work the land. And oftentimes they would hire people that used to own the land. And so if you used to own the land and now you find yourself as a day laborer, you would sometimes find yourself working on the very farm that you used to own. And so you're waiting in town for someone to hire you. Along comes an elite rich landowner and they turn to you and they say, I need you to come work for me for the day. So you go and you agree upon a wage and you go and you work for a day. Now the, the, the day's wage that was offered to these people early in the morning was about an average day's wage. It wasn't exactly enough to live on. It wasn't exactly enough to make a livelihood out of, especially if you're only working on it for a day and you're only guaranteed one day. So it's just a day's wage. You're not exactly doing this person a huge favor. You're not offering them a job. You're offering them a day's work, which may seem generous if you don't have any work, but let's be honest, when you only have one day guaranteed you, it's not exactly the grace that you are looking for. And so this rich landowner who has likely acquired all of this land because poor farmers weren't able to keep their land, is now hiring day laborers. And so here they are harvesting the land, and they didn't quite account for how big the harvest was going to be, so they hired day laborers. And they really didn't know how big the harvest was because they have to go back multiple times a day to get more and more laborers. And notice that the agreed price was not even mentioned to the rest of the laborers. So they are going to work for someone, and they don't even know what they are going to get paid. And so this parable becomes about economic inequality and the way the poor are treated. There are rich landowners who use their power to keep day laborers dependent on the rich. The day laborers are dependent on the rich. The voice of the day laborer at the end demands justice, demands fair treatment. We've worked all day. And yeah, we agreed to a certain price. But then when you went and paid someone who's only worked an hour that same price, that's not fair. And when you do that, you keep me in my position. You keep me in my station in life. You keep me in my class. You never allow me a chance to move. Jesus would have likely told this story to expose the injustice and the oppression of the wealthy who were keeping the poor at a lower station in life. This comes shortly after in chapter 19 of the story of the rich man who was told to give away all of his possessions. And then when he wouldn't, Jesus said, it's very, very hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then we get the parable 
of the workers in the field. And we see again, an elite rich landowner who is using power to control the laborers and to control their station in life. The interesting thing is that this parable is in keeping with the prophets and the law of Moses who warned that when people came into power, they needed to be very careful with how they wielded it because it could become a place of marginalization and oppression. They actually had laws in the Old Testament about giving the land back to the original owners so that you weren't always keeping people subjugated. You weren't always oppressing and marginalizing people. So if you fast forward it to Jesus's time, these day laborers who lost their fields, lost their livelihood, likely sold their small family farm to a rich landowner, they would in the future get their land back. But the system was not set up that way anymore. And so now they were just day laborers, always hired at the discretion of the rich. And so the system was broken and it was not working. And here Jesus is telling a story to help us see the inequality and the way that the poor are being treated and mistreated by the rich. So here's the question. What is this parable about? Is it about God's grace that it's available to all no matter when we turn to it, no matter when we return to the good and seek it, that it's there for us to receive, it's there to us to be caught up in and to participate in? Yes, it could be about that. Is this a parable about scarcity and abundance? Is it a parable about how you know, some think that there's not enough to go around, but really there is. There's more than enough, and we need to be grateful for what we have. Or is this a parable about economic inequality in the way the poor are being treated? And what does that mean for us in our time? Where are we keeping people in their station in life and not allowing them to move forward? Where is marginalization and oppression happening in our time? This parable is complex. This parable is simple. This parable could go in many different directions. And that's the fun of a good parable, is that this is one of those parables where people would have been left with a question. They'd have been left with a wondering. They'd been left trying to figure out what is Jesus trying to get at? What is this all about? Is it as plain as as it seems? Is it more complicated? What can we learn from it? And maybe it's okay that we learn multiple things from this parable. Maybe that's the gift of this parable, is that no matter how we approach it, there's something for us to learn. Thanks again for joining me in Deconstructing the Bible. I hope you've enjoyed the workers in the field and the parable from Matthew chapter 21 through 16. Again, join us on Zoom Thursday at 1 p.m. to discuss this further. I would love to know how do you read it? What questions bubble to the surface? What understandings are you coming to? And what application does that mean for your life? Because again, this is all about us learning and growing and then participating in the renewal, reconciliation, restoration, and the resurrection of all things. Welcome to the kingdom. Thanks for joining us.